0: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support from New Zealand On the Air. In the untouched regions of the forest, the kōkako runs through the treetops feeding on leaves, flowers and fruit. The South Island kōkako, with its distinctive orange wattles at the base of the bill, hasn't been sighted in many years and may be extinct. A situation the blue wattle bird of the North Island may find itself in unless its habitat is preserved. Its delightful call includes a variety of rich organ and bell-like notes.
1: Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quaker's Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz.
2: Good morning, friends. Today we have with us Dr. Jude Sligo who is the coordinator of the local Dunedin Child Poverty Action Group and is a senior lecturer at the Department of Preventive Social Medicine and does research centered on the well-being of children, young people and family equity. You can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and then going to Community or Chaos. Well, welcome to... uh, community, hopefully more community less chaos.
0: <laughs> Kia ora, Marvin nice to um, be here It's um, I'm looking forward to our chat oh, that's
2: good so you've worked uh, on research into the lives of children and young people and in 19, I mean sorry 2007 you worked on the children of Rogernomics Uh and the neoliberal generation, a survey, I believe. Could you tell us what that was about and what the findings from this study were?
0: Um, I can tell you, you're sort of pushing me back into the uh, dredges of my memory here. I had to get the book out this morning and have another look at it and just remind myself of the details. (coughs) Excuse me. Um, Yes, I worked with um, a couple of colleagues. Uh, Well, there were several of us actually doing the data collection. This was in the early 2000s, but the other authors on the book are Jane Higgins and Karen Nairn. And we were really interested um, in the group of young people who were born... I guess, who had never known the world before neoliberalism. So, um, as I said, in the early 2000s. And so we managed to get some money from a Marsden fund, actually, to collect data. It wasn't a survey. Um, It was much more of an in-depth, qualitative project where we were interviewing young people in their last year at school and then their first year out of school thinking about in the first interviews what they kind of intended to do with their lives, not just vocationally but in general, and then what they went on to do. Um, We had three sites, so two urban, one in Christchurch, one in Auckland, and then a rural Southland site where I did, um, that's where I did, I think all of the data collection that I did was in that area, Um, and quite a number of those young people came to Otago University, so interviewed them here for their second interviews. Um, <coughs> but I guess what we were really interested in was, um, you know, the identity building that young people do at that stage of their lives, and whether with that whole neoliberal kind of, uh, the identity of the self, were they aware of the some of the structural and systemic issues that were impacting on them, Or did they sort of see the world as their oyster as it was, I guess, being sold to them at that time of life? So, um, yeah, it was a really cool project where we um, got to know these young people quite well. And um, I often wonder what happened to them because they were mostly 16, 17, 18 back then. And we collected the data from 2003 to... 2006 so now um yeah we often talk about um going back and finding out what they're doing these days but um so I suppose I also actually worked with the starter for my PhD project as well so one of my other um research projects that I've been involved with extensively over the years has been the Dunedin study primarily the projects that focus on the children of the Dunedin study member and parenting and that next generation so I was um, so I also was interested in comparing what was happening for the young people from our neoliberal project with the earlier generation of the Dunedin study members so That was actually my PhD project as well. And I guess if there's one takeaway for me from both of those bits of work, um, it was that um, realistically, no matter what people plan to do, life gets in the way. So very few young people in either of the projects did what they thought they were going to do when they were asked earlier. So it's quite unusual to get that young person who's like, yes, I'm going to do this, and then they end up doing it. How many...
2: Were they mostly going to university, or were they from all all? all
0: the, there the was process? a real mix. So some young people... We wanted to make sure that we included young people that... Um, you know, say we're all in alternative education environments who had been excluded from school... Um, so there was mm. a number of young people like that it's a, yeah, it's
2: only a minority of people that actually graduate from university. I think
0: there's still, and definitely with the the young people we were interviewing, there was an expectation that increasing your education gave you a better future, mm. and there wasn't so much of a reflection on the costs of having a, you know, a tertiary education. It was thought that it was, especially for the rural young people, it was thought of as a way out of the farming life.
2: Do you think that education should be rationed by wealth?
0: No, (laughs) I don't. And I actually, um, I, I talk about this with my own students quite often, that, you know, I had a totally free education and that gave me the ability to study things without thinking about, well, what's this costing me um, and where will it take me? And I feel like young people these days, I mean, at both of those projects that I've just talked about, Indicated that lots of people have a false start. You think you want to do this or there's pressure on you to do that and then you try it and it just isn't for you. Well, that's an expensive experiment these days. Whereas for me, I could have tried a gazillion different things and it seems bizarre and ironic in the current context when actually most people don't have a career for their lives. You know, sort of anecdotally, they say people will have... Five careers and twelve jobs, you know, in their working life. It's probably way more than that, I think these days.
2: I in the eighties and nineties, the most of the people I worked with in my own working life was uh, not professional. Yeah, most of the I felt like most of the people that hadn't been to university that weren't in uh, professional or semi-professional class felt like they didn't have a choice about jobs. one of the advantages of being the middle classes have, thinking you have a choice.
0: Probably, I, I mean, I, I can't comment because I haven't done research in the earlier area. I can comment from a personal point of view because I grew up in an earlier era. So I um, left high school, I think, in 1981. And definitely I had choices, but I I grew up in a middle-class family. So um, there was an unspoken expectation that if you wanted to go to university, you could. And both my parents were tertiary tertiary educated. So, um, you know, I'm well aware of my privilege in having that choice.
2: Uh, How do you think uh, neoliberalism affected people's outlook on life?
0: I think that it sold them a lie so um, that if you worked hard enough you would be successful and if you weren't it was your own fault and we heard quite a lot of that from the young people that we interviewed that that um yeah I was thinking about this on the way over here actually just about the way that we educate young people Right through school is very um, focused on the future, instead of thinking about what are you learning now and taking enjoyment out of that. Instead of always, instead of thinking about well, what can I get from this thing that I'm doing now? Actually, for I think I agree with you that, um, and I think it's happening again now. Lots of people are making. The choice not to go to university because they're aware that it's expensive and they're thinking about doing other things that might lead them into different paths like doing startups or making you know using technology in unique ways that they they wouldn't learn about in a formal education anyway or lots of people going into trades now as well because we had an era of I, i was just thinking about um one of the projects that i've worked on and the Dunedin study was where we interviewed the, the parents of the Dunedin study members. And quite a lot of those parents who had been tradies talked about not wanting their children to be tradies because it was so hard on their bodies. And I think um, we've now maybe had a bit of a turnaround again where, because we've had a shortage of tradespeople, people are aware that it's a, a good industry mm. to go into, it's constructive, you're it literally. You're doing something, you know, good for the world. You're building houses.
2: Yeah. I think, I suspect, oh, actually, I know that in the 90s we uh, did waive a lot of apprenticeships and also we've weakened the union movement strongly. Absolutely. And that would account for not having enough apprentices, not having enough skills. Also, probably account for leaky buildings.
0: Well, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And a whole bunch of young people who don't know what a union is and don't understand the power of the collective. And, you know, in my opinion, all of those things are tightly wound together about, you know, the uh, the power of the individual and the breaking down of the collective.
2: It's interesting because the people that made those decisions to make education uh, – user pay and so on. Yep. They all had free education. <laughs> yeah, I and know. It is that, ironic, isn't it? And they probably had help buying their first house.
0: Yep. So they took advantage of the social welfare system and then d- dismantled it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I have to say I'm biased.
0: Well, so am I. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely yeah. not something I'm neutral about. I, I mean, I think, um, and it's something that we need to really acknowledge that those... Neoliberal systems were set up to encourage some people to do really well, and that came at a big disadvantage to others.:
2: Do you think that people are educated not only what they learn in school, but what they learn in society, what they um, I would have in the past television, but also social media radio, um, or going to the airport and seeing all these women and men in suits. You know, but yep. not only real suits, but also the murals. There are not quite as many of those murals as there was. <laughs> but. but that's uh, a kind of propaganda, isn't it?
0: Um, again, I guess it's, you know, what my, my opinion is as valid as yours on this. Like, it's not something I've particularly thought about, but of course, yes, you, osmosis is a huge way of being educated. And I think, you know, maybe... We, we over educate um, we over emphasize formal education and neglect how we educate people mm-hmm. and families and which is one of the Child Poverty Action Group key asks actually for um, the election is a focus on early childhood education because that is a sector mm-hmm. that is really broken.
2: Maybe it's part of education should be for all groups of young people. <coughs> um, criticism and, and being able to look at things uh, more or less objectively, at least being realised that you may be being persuaded and you need to learn how to make decisions and think about things and with less persuasion from the outside.
0: Well, I guess it's just being clear that you know there's no one's neutral and i I think this is something we talk a lot about in academia these days because um actually a lot of the things that we teach people can access anywhere if you can get on the internet you can find out the things that i'm talking about when i'm lecturing um but what you don't learn is to bring a critical eye to it the information that's being shared with you so i think that's our key role now is to think about in a time of just information, invasion, how do you take a, a critical eye?
2: That should happen in high school as well as university. I should. think it
0: should happen from the crib. Okay. Yeah. Well, tell
2: us about the uh, Child Poverty Action Group.
0: Well, what's the chi- your
2: purpose and, and what's your work?
0: Well, our purpose is to eliminate child poverty in our Aotearoa, New Zealand, and... Um, as an organisation or charity um, founded in 1994 actually um, and so I th- as far as I know I think we would be the longest running f- um, I guess activist group that um, focuses specifically on child poverty um, and we do that through research through education and also through advocacy and lobbying so um A lot of the key people in the Child Poverty Action Group are uh, well known um, like Susan St John um, um, Alan Johnson people that have been around for a long time and are taken seriously in that field Mm -hmm. and locally uh, we've been going I don't know I think maybe about 10 years an hour uh, so we sort of came, there are branches around the country and we came together to support the work of CPAG central but also in a kind of local way so we try to focus on having education events a couple of those a year so we've brought Max Rashbrook down a couple of times we often do a post budget breakfast where we'll bring local people who work in social services and discuss the impacts of the latest budget on the work that they do with children and families and um, we also try to you know do do a little bit of lobbying so at the moment our kind of key idea is to just encourage people to vote to think about child poverty when they're voting. So those are the sort of things that we do. I think um, it would be fair to say that we've had quite a lull as a result of um, COVID. It's been quite hard to bring people together and we're in a rebuilding phase. So if any of your listeners are keen to be involved in a child poverty action group locally, um, they're more than welcome to get in touch with me. We've got some new members that are really keen. So we have got things on the go. How do you get in touch with you? Uh, you can just Google me. Um, there, as we were saying before, there's not many Sligos around, so Judith Sligo at University of Otago. and You'll get my contact details there.
2: Okay, why Child Poverty Action? Why not Simply Poverty Action Group? Is it possible to get children out of poverty without helping their families out of poverty? And do not most children live in who live in poverty live in families that are in poverty and do adults deserve to live in poverty because they have made the wrong choices
0: there's a lot of, there's a lot going on in that question marvin yes um, <laughs> but why child poverty well i guess um, the reasons that are you know up front on our website are because The overall effects of poverty for children are worse, obviously. So, you know, because of developmental issues, we often talk about the first thousand days. Um, But you know, the first part of your life is what sets you up for the rest of your life. So, um, I guess money spent to support people through that, their health and well-being in those early days pays off in the long run if you wanted an economic mm-hmm. argument for it. But I think it's also a moral argument. Um, and your children are just over-representative in poverty figures. So at the moment, using a very crude measure of poverty, about 12% of children live in poverty. So um, So that's important that the... And they've got no control, obviously, over it, so they don't get a say. They are, mm. you know, We're born into the families we're born into, and they don't get to vote, um, so they can't change things. Um, and my personal view is that part of the reason that I personally focus on child poverty is because I think we have a moral obligation to care for the People in society who need caring for the most, and that includes children and people with disabilities and people who have other challenges that make it harder for them. Um, And the other part of your question is do adults deserve to live in poverty because they made the wrong choices? And the obvious answer to that is no. Um, But I think, as we've already discussed, that a neoliberal lens. Can encourage that type of thinking, so that there's you know, lots of those kind of sayings. If you made your bed, you can lie in it. When I think um, you know, if you know if you've experienced poverty yourself, or you know anyone who is in poverty, um, it's not the choices they've made. It may be partly that, but like to some extent, all of our choices are hampered anyway. So if you've got limited choices. You don't have the opportunity to dig yourself out of this hole. I think there's a real problem with that kind of whole. John Key, you know, I managed to move from my state house and become this person, so everyone should be able to do it. It's just not acknowledging that there isn't a level playing field. And... You know, luck has a huge part to play in these kinds of things. And also, what do we mean by a successful upbringing, you know? if Is it successful to run the country if you've run half of the people in the country into poverty? So I guess, um, you know, I just think there's multiple reasons for focusing on children, but part of it is to take the focus away from the adults with whom some people might argue that it is their fault even though we know that's not the case most people are not on benefits for long periods of time and if they are in poverty once you're in poverty the systems and structures are set up to keep you there you're locked there if you can't afford to live because your rent's too high and you've got to borrow money and then you're paying interest on the money that you've had to borrow it's just an endless cycle Have you
2: heard of a book called The Spirit Level? I have. It's obvious that countries that choose to not have great inequality have less poverty and generally happier people. Absolutely. Um, And it's... If your parents are in poverty and feel angry and bad about it, and maybe they even feel bad toward themselves... Even if you're helped physically as a child and don't get the worst sickness and so on, the family situation, without the parents doing anything evil, even including physical punishment, they still their feelings about themselves and about poverty and about where they are in society um, affects the children quite strongly.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I think if every day is a battle just to get food on the table, um, of course you're not doing your best parenting. Absolutely affects everybody, um, and it's hugely stressful for people to live in poverty. And I think anybody who has experienced that knows it. Um, you know I've been a single parent with four children myself and you know I can well remember waking up in the middle of the night being stressed about how you're going to pay the power bill, being down the arms of the couch trying to find some money for the milk, that kind of thing. and it's hugely stressful for people. Um, and you know as I said, you know i've I've had a privileged upbringing that meant that I wasn't stuck there but easily, things could go in other directions and I totally understand that it's it's huge for people. I'm going to play some music now. On that upbeat tone. <laughs>
1: you can't explain, when you're standing in the love light, it's another world again, when you're standing in the love light, and the more it reflects, the warmer it gets, when you're standing in the love. Yeah, we're grooving in the love life. life. Don't even have to think. Grooving in the love life. And every time, the pleasure is mine when we're grooving in the love life. life. Grooving in the love life. In the love life, birds sing that sweet refrain when we're dancing in the Can't explain When you're standing in the love
3: light
1: You're still in the world again When you're standing in the love light And the more it reflects The warmer it gets When you're standing in the love light Dancing in the love light in the love of life. Yeah, I love it when I see all that a light shine. More and more.
2: Hello, that was Jojo Smith with a song called Standing in the Love Light. And it's, I think, a time when we need to stand in the love light. Maybe you need that most when things are difficult or become difficult. And we're talking with uh, Jude...
0: Sligo. Sligo. For those of... people who know about um, Ireland. Uh, It's a a town and a county um, and yeah Sligo.
2: And um, we're talking about child poverty and the child poverty action group and um, the results of what happens to society when you increase inequality. Why do you think that the upper middle class, and often political leaders are so afraid of talking about inequality and poverty.
0: Um, I don't know if they are. Um, I think it is definitely something that is increasingly in the public consciousness so they can't avoid it. And I guess, you know, that's part of our role as In Child Poverty Action Group. Um, And, you know, I guess if we were putting a positive lens on things... We do now have a minister and a minister, and and what well, used to be in the prime minister's department for child poverty reduction. Um, and Jentenit is the current minister. So that has happened in the last six years. We also do have multi-part partner agreement, multi-party agreement that child poverty needs to be measured, and um, no matter who which government is. In. So I think all of that is positive and And, um, you know, I mean, I guess the problem for me is that we shouldn't be saying reduce child po- poverty. We should be saying eliminate child poverty. It just shouldn't be a thing. So being able to say, well, the numbers have reduced is positive. Well, is it? If we still have 10% of children living in poverty, is that... Is that okay? I mean, in my opinion, no. Um, and as for the upper middle classes, I don't know, does anyone think of themselves as being in the upper middle classes? Probably not. Um, but well, my. They
2: had a study of taxation recently saying the very top of the upper.
0: Well, those are income class. earners, isn't it? But do they? they I, I'm, I guess I'm questioning the use of the term "class" because I just think that most people don't necessarily associate that with that anymore. But that's a whole different topic. But if you're talking about why do wealthy people not want to talk about poverty? I mean, I guess the answer to that is because they think it's a win loss scenario, and if they're not winning, they'd be losing. When actually, I think. We should be thinking about it as a win-win so if everybody had enough to live we wouldn't have the social problems that we have. But I don't know because I guess I'm not in the upper echelons of... Mm -hmm. What is it, the 2%? Yeah.
2: And they pay half the taxation that the people on the bottom pay. Well,
0: if you're lucky, yeah. Most of them pay no tax because they don't have a personal income.
2: Do you think that um, you can effectively relieve child poverty without bringing their families out of poverty? Uh, Not just in terms of lack of money, but in terms of adequate, secure, long-term housing and the sense of being respected members of the wider community.
0: No, I don't. I think it's very complex. I think that of course, you know, as discussed, children are part of families, families are part of society, and society, the face of society in New Zealand, Aotearoa looks very different to how it used to look, and I think we need to embrace that diversity and acknowledge the errors of the past and embrace the things that work well. Um, and addressing those issues about housing, about education, the healthcare system that have all been just horribly underfunded for so long and um, actually supporting the people who need it instead of those, some people, just getting wealthier and wealthier at the expense of others. So we need to think about addressing things like colonisation, making the most of the great ideas that do come from community based initiatives, doing things that work for people in the ways that they live and not imposing some kind of centralist idea of what's appropriate um, and working with people to create the best society for them and their children so that everybody feels like they're part of a community and that we can respect each other instead of feeling fearful of each other.
2: Do you think that perhaps inequality causes fear for each other?
0: Yes, I do. I think that people are anxious about the unknown and they feel like they need to protect what they have.
2: Is that one place where central government can actually be of help? Because most of the places that I know where there's... a a lot of equality. The government takes part of it through taxation, through health care, through free education. Like um, A country like Finland is not a wealthy country compared to other European countries. They've got lumber as their biggest industry, but they've got probably the best education system, one of the best in the world. And it's all free all the way through university.
0: I think um, you know people do always hold Scandinavia up as the example of yes. a highly functioning society where um, you know, people are on on measures of happiness are happier, and that's the same as as you said the spirit level where you know, there's a certain amount of money that people need to kind of. <clears throat> So that you can function, but after that, it doesn't increase your happiness at all. Actually, um, and probably decreases it, decreases happiness because you become fearful that you're going to lose it. Um, but uh, I mean, there's problems in Scandinavia no, as sure, well. Sure, no countries yeah.
2: without them, um,
0: I mean, I think they I definitely from have. Their
2: problems with- particularly Sweden but also other countries. Yeah, and that um, they
0: they were not very uh, welcoming of refugees and of yeah. So I I mean and they also have the advantage of having natural resources that are yeah. well very, that's why yeah. I picked on
2: Finland, Finland. yeah, yeah. Because they're the exception. Yeah. In that, that is true.
0: Um I mean I absolutely agree and if you think about what happened I think that's the thing that can give us hope is that You know, New Zealand, Aotearoa, has been at the forefront of a kind social welfare system in the past. So in the 1930s, we had a universal, you know, cradle to the grave was what we talked about. And somewhere along the line, that's just been, well, not somewhere along the line, in 1984, basically, it just got ripped away and has continually been decimated ever since.
2: I remember in the 70s, they had something called the Commission for the Future.
0: Ah, I don't remember that.
2: Oh, they did. Maldon oh. got rid of it.
0: Oh, right, yeah.
2: But one of the things, they did surveys about what people wanted for the future. And most uh, most people that bothered to take part in the surveys said they wanted a be more equalitarian. And they, they seemed to think, believe they could have a, a good life where people weren't working 40 hours a week.
0: And definitely, um, I've done several projects, a couple for MSD over the years, where um, for children's agenda. So asking children what they want, and what children want is a safe environment where they've got time to spend with their their parents and loved ones, and that they you know they get to do some of the things that they like and they feel part of society so I think that's you know it's really key is just thinking about what do we want for the future well we all want a safe and kind environment and I think that's the thing we need to focus on rather than what does the bank balance look like
2: Uh, many families really feel like they have to both work full-time in order to pay the mortgage yeah um and have decent housing. And even then, it's hard to get decent housing. Absolutely. Um, but it seems to me that um, that hope for a, a shorter working week and the idea that families wouldn't have to work 80 or 90 hours between them was, it was a useful vision.
0: And I think that we kind of revisited it again with the pandemic Mm, and, you know, people really valued the opportunity to spend time with their kids. And um, yeah, I mean, I definitely agree that there's an issue with what is considered work. So um, I often think that, you know, paid work Takes preference over every other sort of work, and part of that, of course, you know, if we're going to go down a feminist track, is just to think about who does the caring work, it's usually women, and that's the unpaid work, but actually, that's the most valuable work in society.
2: I'm going to play another song and then we'll come back.
0: Cool.
1: on your mind Lift the lid and spill the beams Do a novel there is time For you to bring the sunshine back Strengthen up those weary bones Rise again once more to yield You need to come and walk the field I know the bridge will rock and sway the feeling so alone Yeah, the trouble settles in Can leave you worried to the bone But you have grown a thicker skin You're much tougher than you think Everybody has their day When the bridge will rock and sway Everybody has their day When the bridge will rock and sway Rock and sway Rock and sway Tap into your mojo Take it out to play Come on down this fourth the field And let's just see why we can
2: talking with uh, Jude Sligo.
0: You got it. Yes.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And she's a a member and convener of the Dineen Child Poverty Action Group. Well, how do we have realistic hope when leaders tell us that we really can't really reduce poverty? And they're not going to, none of the, most of the political groups aren't talking about changing the tax system, make it fairer. I think... Uh, I don't want to go to particular parties at this point in time. Um,
0: I think we do have to have hope because, as we were just saying before, you know, we have in the past been at the forefront of... An equitable society created by a government so we can do it again we need to acknowledge that it's going to take bravery and I think we as citizens need to be really aware of our power to put pressure on parliamentarians to do the right thing and so We need to do those things like vote and we need to lobby and we need to contact our MPs and we need to make it clear that the society we have now is inequitable and it's not working for everybody. And while it's not working for everybody, I don't think it's working for anybody. And I do um, really worry about a lack of hope, especially for young people who are being you know coming into a world where they're kind of told that you know it's a it's climate chaos um that if we don't do something immediately the world's all over and and i think it's very fearful if people don't have hope but i have actually i think the thing that keeps me going is um well if you don't do anything you know you're not helping there's the idea that you know a a number of teaspoonfuls all add to the ocean so I think that's a useful way to think about it and I also think there's huge power in the collective so the research project that I've been working on in the last couple of years is with groups of young activists we've just written a book called Fierce Hope where they do have hope for the future and part of the hope is understanding what a better world would look like and working together to cr- to put pressure on so I think we do have to have hope because if you don't hold some hope it just becomes nihilistic And um, and we you know as human beings we made the world we've got now so we can change the world we've got now the social world and we can protect our environment we just need to think beyond ourselves that's my view
2: Do you think the direction which we need to go to um, make the country and the infrastructure more resilient and to deal with climate change to hopefully mitigate it to some extent, can these be interconnected with reducing poverty and increasing equality instead of inequality?
0: I think they're intrinsically connected. So if we, um, you know, address issues like, I mean, even just really basic things like the enormous amount of consumerism and the emphasis placed on importing and exporting goods, thinking about, well, how do we feed and care for the people in our country and how do we have them doing worthwhile jobs and how do we make sure that our children are being educated not just to be some sort of vocation but to be you know contributing members of society thinking about what does it mean to be a citizen then I think yes all of those things are possible and require us to think about equity to some extent I often wonder if the lens is pointed in the wrong direction when we focus on poverty because I think it's equally unhealthy to be too wealthy and there's just massive examples all around if you think about, I don't know if you've ever watched Succession on TV but just when people have too much it's not good for them either and it's definitely not good for society.
2: Yes, you can look at a former U.S. president.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, <laughs> think of that. Yeah, but, um,
0: absolutely.
2: I think Victoria University did a study on social pathology among students, and I'm not sure how accurate it is, but they they claimed that they found more of this, more greed in social pathology among um, economists and uh, like commerce and law.
0: Well, I suppose, um, you know, if you think about the kind of human characteristics that probably make you good at making money, they require you to be quite ruthless and and probably, um, you know, maybe, I don't want to say selfish, but at least... Focused on something very specific that's going to improve your lot, with maybe some disregard for others' lot.
2: I suspect a lot of businesses could be <coughs> run really on a fair <coughs> basis and still do quite well.
0: I'm sure that's true. <coughs> and you know, there's some really good examples, isn't there? Like you think about those fabulous people out at the um, South Dunedin Bowling Club, where they've got you know a great initiative going there, and I think that they're managing to make a living there as well Can you tell us a bit about that? Well I I mean I feel like they might be good people for you to interview but I know they they have an initiative where they provide food and people pay what they can afford basically and some people pay more than others and it subsidises the food for others You bring your own bowl along and fill it up and um, I think Fabulous model of how to be kind and still make a living.
2: Is that one of the things that gives you hope?
0: Yes, it does. Yeah, it really does. I think all of those kinds of things where people are just thinking outside the box. And the other thing that gives me hope is, um, you know, I teach students, undergraduate students, and they are studying like I teach into a community healthcare major of the Bachelor of Health Sciences and they those students want to work towards a better world they're very conscious of equity they're very conscious of they've they themselves come from diverse backgrounds and they really want a better society as well and they're fabulous young people to work with so I feel really privileged to have those people in my life as well
2: do you somehow feel like that we've been born into an abundant world in some ways the earth's a beautiful
0: place i'm sure that's true and i feel like um you know everybody does their best that's the other thing isn't it you know we were talking before about is Is there sort of an idea that some people are blamed for the poor choices they make? And I think no matter... I I mean, yes, that's true. We're all doing the best with what we've got, and so it's unfair for some people to have less and have to operate in that same... in the same stratosphere but with so much less. And no wonder it becomes really hard when all of those systems and structures are just continually against you and um, you know everyone loves their children everyone's doing their best and what we need to do as a society is support them to do that as well as they can Um, and so I think that's where the key lies is just thinking about what are these systems and structures and how do we make those operate for everybody because if we can make them work really well for the people with the least advantage they will obviously work really well for everybody
2: what kind of things would you change in schools to make it easier for for families and for people in difficult situations i must
0: admit i mean in a former life i was a trained teacher but i haven't been in in that space for quite a long time um I am really concerned about early childhood education um, because it largely has just become a business and I think it's inappropriate for children to be used in that way as a way for people to make money Um, so I think we need a total reform of early childhood education my other personal bugbear at the moment is just better civics education so making sure that Um, Because recently, was it Labor, I think, brought out a policy saying that everybody had to do financial studies or something about balancing your checkbook or whatever. And um, I just thought, really, is that what is considered to be the most important thing, is that you know how to manage money, when actually we should be thinking about what does it mean to be a citizen? How How do we be good people and how do we work together? Rather than you know, sitting counting your coins, um, yeah. So that's my, that's my personal bugbear at the moment. I'm really interested in making sure that everybody knows why we have a democracy and how how it should work.
2: That's probably really important right now because so many there's so many challenges to it. Partly because of inequality, but to to operate within. A country, you really need to know about citizenship. You need to know what you can do to make a better country and how to influence your country.
0: Absolutely, and And I think you know part of what we learn. Yeah, I mean, there has been um, the new history curriculum, which I think will be really helpful. So, because obviously you can't go forward without understanding the past. So, I think that's a great thing for young people to be learning about and understanding who they are and the history of Aotearoa New Zealand as well. Okay,
2: thanks a lot for coming in. It's been good to talk with you, and it's, it's hopeful to talk about it.
0: It's been a real privilege, and thank you, Marvin. I feel like we've gone all over the place, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, and, yeah, like I said, people are welcome to get in touch with me if they're interested in Child Poverty Action Group. And all the best with the rest of your program.